again, and I'm so glad you all came back this week after last week. But for those who weren't here last week, I think it's just good maybe just to briefly recap on what we looked at last week. Last week we looked at both the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. And you'll recall that we saw from the scripture how that the Holy Spirit is not a force, he's not an influence, he's not the wind, he's like the wind, but we came to the conclusion that he is a person. A person has a personality, and a personality implies the existence of certain attributes like emotions and feelings and will and intellect, and we saw that the Holy Spirit possessed all of those. He's a person. But more than that, he is God. He is God. And we concluded last week by looking in continuing from the person of the Spirit, how that He indwells us, but also empowers us to live and be witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll recall I mentioned and threw out the challenge about being baptized in the Holy Spirit with biblical evidence, something that you can answer if the question is put to you, are you baptized in the Spirit? You can say either yes or no. That was the answer we saw that Paul expected when he posed that question in Acts 19. But it's important to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, to be endued with power from on high, but more than that, it's important to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. Children of Israel needed manna every day. We need the Word of God every day, and we need a fresh infilling of His Spirit every day. Well, tonight we want to look at the topic. Again, you have your, your outline, and I'll try and make sure I don't stray from it. But the topic tonight is the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the local church. You see, not only does the Holy Spirit indwell us, but whenever we come together, He seeks to presence Himself, to manifest His presence in our midst. Now, that might sound a little unsettling for some of you, but I want to suggest to you and remind us all that this is normal, healthy New Testament Christianity. Somebody once made the remark that the church has become subnormal, that when it begins to become normal, it looks abnormal. Did you catch what the speaker of that quote was saying? The church has become subnormal, and obviously in his mind, in comparison with the healthy New Testament Christianity, the way the early church was, we've obviously drifted away from that, that we've become subnormal. That whenever we begin to recover something of the New Testament experience, we begin to look abnormal. And yet, I believe the Lord, who is the Savior of the body, the church, who loves His church and gave Himself for her, would require of us His people to exhibit normal New Testament Christianity that we read about in our Bibles. And so tonight, an aspect of what church life was like was that when the church would assemble together, the Holy Spirit would manifest Himself in their gatherings. How many of you believe that happens today? I do. And as we shall see in next week, that will still happen if we desire God by His Spirit to presence Himself in our midst. And tonight we're going to look at different ways that the Holy Spirit does that. The text we're going to look at is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And before we look at it, just by way of introduction, let me just say a few things about Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. Paul begins his letter by speaking about the cross. In the early chapters of 1 Corinthians, he speaks about the cross. And as he concludes his letter, especially in chapter 15, he speaks about the resurrection. 
And so everything in between, including our subject tonight, must be viewed and understood in light of Christ. The Holy Spirit, Jesus said, will glorify him. Jesus said, he, speaking of the Spirit, shall glorify me. So that's the first point I want to mention. Secondly, this letter which Paul wrote was written primarily not to bring instruction, but rather to bring correction. Now, there is instruction in it, obviously, but the instruction is a means to bring correction. This letter was written to bring correction. And the reason we know that is that on a number of occasions, Paul will introduce an issue with these two words, now concerning. And you see, Paul had received a letter from this church by an individual who was highlighting issues that were happening in the church that needed attention, that needed to be corrected. And so when Paul writes his letter, as he responds to each issue, he responds by introducing it with those two words, now concerning. And in our passage tonight in 1 Corinthians 12, he begins with those two words, now concerning spiritual gifts, or gifts or manifestations of the Holy Spirit. And so there was an area with regarding the, the Holy Spirit manifesting himself that needed to be corrected. Not quenched, not toned down, but simply corrected. There was some kind of misuse, misrepresentation going on that needed his attention. The third point I want to mention is the context for the manifestation of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, is that of worship. Paul uses this phrase on a number of occasions. He, was, he writes his letter. He says, now when you come together. When you come together. Why else does the church come together but to worship God? So it's in that setting of worship that the gifts, the manifestation of the Spirit takes place. And in this situation, there was some kind of problem, some kind of misuse, some kind of misrepresentation that Paul needed to address. And here we really need to do a little bit of detective work to try and establish what the issue was. And it would seem that the problem was that people were speaking in tongues. Nothing wrong with that. Not at all. But the problem was it seemed like as if the majority or all of the people were speaking in tongues at the one and the same time. Now that's a problem. If you've ever been in a church service abroad or where the service is in a different language to your own, it's very hard to get anything out of the service. And to use that analogy, what was happening in Corinth was when the church came together, the majority or every single person present were speaking in tongues, and nobody had a clue what was being said. And when that happens, the church was not growing, it was not being edified. And so that appears to be the issue. And as you see in your outline, we get that clue from what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14, and we'll look at that chapter next week. But he says, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say you're out of your minds? Now, Paul writing this letter, as I said, he writes it to bring correction. And clearly this was the problem. People at the same time the majority of the congregation, if not all of them speaking in tongues, that if an unbeliever came in or someone who was not accustomed to that, they would think they were crazy and maybe ever never darken the door of a church again. That's what was at stake. He goes on to say, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. Because clearly, because of the behavior of the Corinthians, there was confusion. 
So much so that Paul brings his correction. Now, he, he'll say more than one thing to correct it, but he, here's one aspect of him correcting it that I've put in the outline. If any speak in a tongue, <clears throat> let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. Here he's trying to bring correction to restore order. No need for the whole congregation to speak in tongues. Let two or three do it, one at a time. And each time one does it, let there be an interpretation in their known language that the church might be edified. While tongues, or the misuse of tongues, I should say, was the problem, as we shall see next week, Paul was clearly in favor of speaking in tongues. He prized it very highly. What his problem was, the misuse of it for the detriment of the health of the church and for outsiders coming in. So that clearly was the problem. You had one manifestation of the Spirit or one gift of the Spirit that was dominating the worship setting when the Corinthians came together to worship. Secondly, their enthusiasm for this vitally important gift led them to come to the wrong conclusion. It would seem they believed, <clears throat> because they spoke in tongues, that they had arrived at the pinnacle of spirituality. We get a clue from 1 Corinthians 13, that chapter on love, where Paul makes this remark, if I speak of the tongues of men and angels. <clears throat> and so it would seem that they felt they almost were entering into an angelic existence because they were speaking in tongues. And one drawback of that was they began to downplay the importance of the cross. That's why as Paul begins this letter in chapters 2 and 3, he really emphasizes and stresses the importance of the cross. And so when you have this problem, where one manifestation of the Spirit is dominating the service, two problems have arisen that Paul needs to address. We'll address one of them here tonight, and we'll look at the other next week. What he will attempt to do, and we'll see it tonight, is stress the importance of diversity. He will argue that the Holy Spirit, when he's made welcome in our gatherings and allowed to manifest himself, he will bring diversity. He will bring out the beauty of the body of Christ. Everyone with all our different personalities and giftings, he will bring all of that out together. At the present, when they were speaking in tongues, there was no diversity, there was uniformity. Everybody was exercising the same gift. And so tonight we'll see he will stress the importance of diversity. The second way that he brings correction, which we'll look at next week, is the importance of intelligibility. Because you see, if they're all speaking in tongues, nobody can understand a word that's being said. And so he will stress the need for intelligibility in the church. So tonight we want to look at what Paul does in highlighting the importance of diversity, that the Holy Spirit will bring diversity to the church gathering. We're not going to go through all of these verses, but in verse 2, I want you to see what he says. He says, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. The Corinthians came from a pagan background. Now, what is significant about this? And if you were here last week, you'll remember that I mentioned that when it comes to seeking to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, I made the point you do not need to fear of receiving anything demonic. Remember Jesus said, if, if, father, if a son asks his father for a fish, he won't be given a, a serpent. If he asks for an egg, he won't be given a scorpion. And serpents and scorpions are language Jesus used to describe the power of the enemy. 
And Jesus, by purposely using those two uh, creatures, was saying, you don't need to fear the demonic when you ask the Father for the Holy Spirit. And there's no indication whatsoever, given the pagan background that Corinthians came from, that there was anything demonic going on in their meetings in the name of the Holy Spirit manifesting himself. No hint of it, no fear of anything like that happening. And that just reinforces what the Lord said. Verse 3, Paul says, Therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, if you were to go down the town in Monaghan and ask people at random, can you say Jesus is Lord, they'll say it. But that doesn't mean they're saved. What Paul is clearly saying here, and given the background of these people where emperor worship was rife and the emperor assumed almost like a, a godlike status, they would proclaim at the risk of their own lives Jesus is Lord. They would not say Caesar is Lord or Nero was Lord. They would say Jesus is Lord. And in that context, you can only do that by the power of the Spirit. If somebody put a knife to your throat and asked you to renounce Christianity or die, that's when you need the power of the Spirit to proclaim Jesus is Lord, to be a witness for him. We need the Spirit of God to say that, to empower us to be witnesses and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. Verses 4 through 6, for time's sake, I won't read them, but we will look at them individually. But I want to put out, the, just to, 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 to mention, as Paul looks at various manifestations of the Spirit, you'll notice he says words like this, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. To one is given this, to another that, to one this, to another that, to one this, to another that, to another, to another, to another, and still to another. And again, if we listen to what he's saying, he's emphasizing the importance of diversity. Each person, when they come together, has been given a gift, a different gift. We're not all given the same. He's emphasizing diversity. To each is given. To one is given this, to one that, to another this, to another that, to another, to another, to another, and still to another. You could nearly put etc. at the end of what he's saying. He's stressing diversity. And just by the way, let me mention this. What he is not doing is giving us a list and saying there are nine gifts of the Spirit and only nine. That is not his heart. That is not the emphasis he's bringing. Dressing diversity. Let's not put God in a box or limit him. There is not nine and only nine. That is not what Paul's saying. He's stressing diversity. At Christmas time, we get gifts. Nice little boxes wrapped with a bow on the top. It's important we don't carry that imagery when we look at the gifts of the Spirit, as if God up there sends a gift down when we meet together. The gifts of the Spirit or the manifestation of the Spirit is nothing less than God the Holy Spirit manifesting Himself, making Himself known when we come together. It's God going public among His people. And I don't know about you, but that excites me because anything can happen. Anything can happen. You'll see it next week in 1 Corinthians 14, but Paul makes the remark that when people are prophesying in the worship service and an unbeliever comes in, he says the secrets of his heart are made known and he will fall down and declare God is truly among you. Wouldn't you like people from Monaghan and Ballybay or wherever to come in here and acknowledge God is truly in this house? I've had an encounter with him. Encounter with him. Time for the church 
to be normal, even if it means looking abnormal. And so Paul gives examples. No way is this, is this exhaustive. Gives examples of how the Holy Spirit can manifest himself when we gather together. And the first one he mentions here, to one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Verse 8, for to one is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom. Now we have a slight problem here because Paul does not define what that means. The Bible speaks about wisdom. If you read through the book of Proverbs, you'll, you'll read about wisdom and the importance of getting wisdom. The book of James gives us this promise, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God and he will give him wisdom. When Paul wrote to the Colossians, he prayed for them that they would have wisdom. There is a supernatural wisdom where we ask God and he shows us exactly what to do in a situation. No question about that. But I don't believe that is what Paul is speaking about here. If you've ever done a study of the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, you'll discover that each piece of armor is a biblical truth mentioned elsewhere in the letter to the Ephesians. And when it comes to understanding what this message of wisdom is, we need to look in the letter to the Corinthians to get some idea what it is. In Paul's day, and in the, the time of the Corinthians, wisdom was, to use a, a, a common term, a worldview. You hear of that term, worldview. Everybody's got a worldview. Something that they believe makes sense out of life. For those of us who are followers of Christ, we would say we have a Christian worldview. There are those who have an atheistic worldview, or a scientific worldview, or a naturalistic worldview, a worldview that denies the supernatural. Ours is a Christian worldview. In Paul's day, wisdom was a worldview, something that made sense out of life. In 1 Corinthians 1.20, he asks the question, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? A worldview. In fact, the word in the Greek for wisdom is the word Sophia. The word for love is the word phileo. And if you put them together, you get phileo Sophia philosophy. Love of wisdom. And that was what Paul was up against as he was writing to the Corinthians. They had a fascination with wisdom. Not only was wisdom a worldview, it was also a skill in communicating and persuading others to your worldview. So it was both a message or, or a philosophy or a worldview and also a skill in communicating that worldview. In 1 Corinthians 1.17, it's in your outline, listen to what Paul said, given that context. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. With not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Notice, he sent me to baptize, not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom. That was how they understood wisdom, a worldview, and yet also a skill in communicating it, using the right kind of language words to captivate an audience and win them over to your worldview. And Paul purposely denies that. He says, I'm not going to be part of that. I'm not going to lower my standard. I'm not going to adopt that method. I'm going to let the cross of Christ speak for itself and let its power be displayed. Furthermore, in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 4, he says, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and the power. Notice my speech, he says, was not in plausible words of wisdom, nor my message 
was not in plausible words of wisdom. Wisdom was how you communicated it, and wisdom was the message, the philosophy you believed. And Paul says, my speech and my wisdom are not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So what was Paul's message? What was the wisdom that he was proclaiming to the people? Well, in 1 Corinthians 2, 7, it's on your outline, he says, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our glory. He goes on to say, for the word or the message of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross, the message of the cross to every believer is the power of God. Of God. It's foolishness to an unbeliever, to an outsider, to someone who's unsaved. The cross is foolishness. But to those of us who are saved, walking with Christ, it is the power of God. He goes on to say, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Now, let's think about that statement carefully to get the flow. Paul preaches Christ crucified, the message of the cross that Jesus Christ died for your sin and mine, took our place, paid our fine, took upon himself the judgment of our sin, and our sin actually was placed on him. He was our substitute. We deserve to die on the cross He took our place. He paid our fine. The message of Christ crucified. Now Paul says, that's what we preach. We preach Christ crucified. And to those of us who are called, he says, to those of us who are saved, he says, the message of Christ crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, the message of of Christ crucified, he says, is the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God is the message of Christ crucified. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, he says, and because of him, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. And so when we look at what Paul says about wisdom, in relation to the cross, in these early chapters, I think it's logical to conclude that when Paul speaks, when the church comes together and one is given by the Spirit the message of wisdom, I believe somebody is inspired, empowered by the Holy Spirit to share some kind of message or utterance relating to the truth of the cross. Christ crucified. Notice this manifestation of the Spirit is not called wisdom. You can receive wisdom and do nothing about it. But this is what he calls a message of wisdom. A message communicated, characterized by wisdom, by the truth of Christ crucified. I think this manifestation works in different ways. Yes, it's given to the church, and someone will be inspired to preach or declare some message characterized by the truth of Christ crucified, to inspire, to build up the body, and to reach the lost. This gift, I believe, can be taken outside of the church, even though the context is the worship service, when you read them through the ministry of Jesus and the apostles, the gifts of the Spirit operated outside of the local church as well. And this gift, I believe, operates like this. You could be speaking to someone, having a conversation with them, and suddenly they say something, and the Spirit of God prompts you, and what they say you take as a point of reference to begin to proclaim and share the gospel with them. Maybe somebody here tonight, and you've had that experience. You're in conversation, somebody says something, and you seize the opportunity, and you take that remark they said, and you weave the gospel message into it of Christ crucified. That's the Spirit of God manifesting this 
utterance or message of wisdom. Paul goes on to say, to another is given the message of knowledge. And again, he doesn't define what this means. So again, we look at the letter to the Corinthians and see where he mentions knowledge and try and grapple with it and come up with some kind of understanding of what he's saying. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he speaks about knowledge. And the issue of this chapter, by the way, is all about food that was sacrificed to idols. Meat that was bought in the marketplace at that time was previously sacrificed in pagan temples. And there was an issue within the church, is it all right for a believer to eat meat, to buy meat from the market, eat it, knowing that it had been sacrificed in the temple? Was it safe? Was it all right to do so? And there was a difference of opinion within the church. Some had a real issue with it. Those who had been saved out of pagan backgrounds, it was a definite, no, no, no way would you touch that. But for others like Paul, they had that revelation and understanding there's only one God. He's the creator of all things. He owns the cattle on the thousand hills. And if you eat anything and you bless it, it's sanctified by the word of God in prayer. You're perfectly free to eat it. It's totally safe. He and others had that revelation and understanding while others didn't. And so he says, and in this same chapter, first of all, in, in verse 1, now food that's offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Now, that term, all of us possess knowledge, was some kind of slogan or, or statement that the church were making when they would come together every so often. They would pride themselves in being very knowledgeable. We all possess knowledge. But Paul reminds them that kind of knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so whatever this message of knowledge is, there's clearly an inference that it will exemplify the love of God and love for each other. He goes on to say in the same chapter, in verses 6 and 7, Yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and of whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. And again, that's linked to the whole issue of eating meat, sacrifice to idols. But this knowledge that Paul says that not everybody possesses, notice, it's knowledge that lets us know that we exist for Almighty God. For His pleasure, John says, we are created. God doesn't exist for us, we exist for Him, for His glory. And he goes on to say, and there's one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. In other words, the fact that we've been created for the glory of God and how that might be worked out in our day-to-day -day lives comes through our relationship with Jesus Christ because it's through Him and through Him alone that we have a relationship with our Creator who created us for His glory. And everything we do in life day by day brings glory and honor to Him. And we need the Lord Jesus Christ to help appropriate that and lead us and guide us and see that worked out in our individual lives. In other words... It's knowing who we are and how to live our lives, how to respond to circumstances in light of who God is. And this is described as knowledge. And so it would seem that a message of knowledge is some kind of truth teaching from the Word of God that becomes real to us that will bring a breakthrough or liberate us in situations in life where we're struggling. It's like the light bulb comes on. You could be in conversation with someone. They may be telling you a problem, and suddenly the Spirit of God will quicken something from the Word, and you will know in an instance how that could be applied to their situation. And when you communicate it to them and you share it with them, suddenly the light comes on in their lives and strongholds come down in their minds and they experience liberty and freedom. It's a message of knowledge, truth revealed by the Spirit of God communicated that will bring liberty to their circumstances, to their situation. 
Paul tells us, and we'll, we'll, if you read it in 1 Corinthians 13, that this knowledge is linked to what he calls mysteries, something that's maybe hidden that is about to be revealed. In fact, he links it to Revelation also, and I've put the, the passage, the, the text there, so that we, um, just for time's sake. The next manifestation that he talks about here is prophecy. To another is given the message of wisdom, knowledge. To another, uh, sorry, faith by the same Spirit. Sorry, faith. There are different kinds of faith, and we know that faith pleases God. We can't be a follower of Jesus Christ without faith. It's by faith in Him, putting our faith and trust, trusting Him with our very lives that brings salvation. You see, yes, we need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but Scripture says even the demons believe and tremble. You see, believing in Christ is not simply giving mental assent to the truth of the Word of God and to the reality of Calvary and what He did for us. But it's believing that brings about a transformation. It's believing that comes to the point and says, yes, Lord, I believe I'm a sinner and you died for me. And because I believe, I'm willing to turn my life over to you completely and put you in the driving seat. And I'm willing to trust you with my future and obey you and follow you and live for you. There's believing and there's believing. But the faith here that Paul is speaking about is supernatural faith. It is a, a gift of faith. In 1 Corinthians 13, he references it again as faith that can move mountains, that can enable us to overcome impossibilities in life. And this manifestation of faith just comes in an instant that you could not doubt if you even tried to. It's just a faith that takes over you and you know that you know that you know it's done. Something's about to happen and nothing can convince you otherwise. You cannot work that up. You receive it as the Spirit of God gives it. Interestingly, faith, as Paul references it here, is actually a catalyst for the next two gifts he mentions. He goes on to talk about gifts of healings. Notice the plural, gifts of healings. You hear this phrase, but it's not biblical at all. So-and-so has the gift of healing. We know what we mean by that, but you won't find the gift of healing in the Bible. Because when we use that term like that, when we, when we say so-and-so has the gift of healing, what we mean is this person sees incredible results in the area of healing. Nearly every kind of sickness, disease, all of the time. That's the, the impression that's conveyed. What Paul says, the Word of God gives gifts of healings. Now, we don't know how many there are. But I'm only speculating. There are so many illnesses, diseases, and branches of diseases in this world today. Maybe God has a gift of healing for each one of them. I don't know. Gifts of healings perhaps are given, and you'll find that certain people are gifted and see incredible success at a particular kind of ailment. Maybe an individual sees people with, with back problems healed a high percentage of the time, but sees very little healing in another area and vice versa. That's why we need each other. We need the body of Christ because every person has something to give. Gifts of healings may relate also to the way healing is administered by the laying on of hands or maybe healing en masse where somebody prays a prayer without touching anybody and people are healed. I don't know. But the scope for healing is wide and varied. But because Paul specifically says there are gifts of healings, here's what that really means for you and me. It means at any time in our lives, a gift of healing may be given to us to minister to somebody else. 
And that means we never, ever have the excuse not to pray for anyone who's sick who comes to us by saying, I don't have the gift of healing. You might see one person healed in your entire life. You may see many, but you'll never know till you pray for somebody who's sick. These aren't reserved for preachers or pastors, for the body of Christ. Gifts of healings, plural. There are people here tonight who have gifts of healings, and you may not even know it because you've never maybe prayed for the sick or somebody who needs prayer, you've shied away from it. Be encouraged. And I pray what I've just said will challenge some people tonight. We've never the excuse not to pray for anybody who seeks prayer because we don't have the gift of healing. We have the Spirit of God within us who can manifest gifts of healings. Any other of these gifts at any moment, any time. That's why I say anything can happen when we come together. Working of miracles, another manifestation of the Spirit. I've put the definition here, a miracle, an extraordinary, an extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention in human affairs. And we see examples of miracles in the Bible, God controlling the forces of nature, raising the dead, turning water into wine, and so on. There are miracles of healing. I think of this incredible miracle in Acts 4, the man at the, the beautiful gate, the gate beautiful. What I find incredible about this healing was this man never walked. And yet when Peter and John went to him and said, silver and gold have I none, such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. What, it, what I find incredible about this miracle is that not only was he completely healed, but he could walk immediately and run and leap. You see, when God healed him before he took off running, he would have been, his physical state would have been like that of a, of a newborn baby or a toddler who's healthy. But yet, those of you who have children know that a toddler has to learn to walk. It's healthy, but it has to learn and gets a few bumps and bruises along the way. When this man who never walked, and bear in mind his limbs would have been totally weak through disuse, not only was he healed, but he didn't have to learn to walk. Off immediately. And that to me is really, I find staggering about this miracle. Because whatever the source of his problem was, yes, God healed him. But under, the norm, under normal circumstances, he may have had to learn to walk again. But he didn't. He could walk instantly, having never walked. I find that an incredible miracle. I believe God does miracles today. Do you? I do. Greatest miracle of all isn't something like that. Not physical. It's spiritual where somebody who was lost in darkness, outside of Christ, with no hope, suddenly the Lord Jesus Christ, by His Spirit, becomes real to them. Turn to Him. They're made a new creature. And they get a peace and a joy and a purpose for living they never had before. Another gift Paul mentions here, manifestation, is prophecy. We'll look at this more next week. But prophecy, a spontaneous revelation given to encourage and build up the church. How many of you know the church needs encouragement? We all do. But there's two components to prophecy. Revelation and communication. Paul says, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. Now look at this carefully. Prophecy comprises revelation and communication. A revelation, don't be put off by that word, it's just simply something that God reveals. God may impress upon you in your quiet time a scripture verse for somebody. He may put a thought in your mind, show you a vision, a picture. That is God revealing something to you. 
The moment you communicate that, you are prophesying. Paul says if a revelation is made to another sitting there, and the picture here in the church is, if somebody gets a revelation, you just hold your, 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 your tongue, just wait a wee second, let the other person stop, and then you'll get your turn. The moment you communicate, you're prophesying. You can all prophesy one by one. You see, if God gives you a verse of Scripture to share with someone, out of all the thousands of verses of Scripture in the Bible, He impresses one particular one on you to share with someone. You have no idea the impact that may have. You don't know what they're facing at that moment. They may have even received the same verse themselves that day. You don't know what they'll face tomorrow, the week ahead. But the Holy Spirit will bring that verse back to their remembrance and can just sustain them through their situation. Powerful. Communicating the Word of God that He impresses upon us to share with someone can so totally minister into their circumstances. It's powerful. It encourages. It blesses. The next manifestation He lists is discerning of spirits. And interestingly, it occurs after the gift of prophecy and before the gifts of tongues and interpretation. You see, Paul will stress the need that any kind of utterance that is given in the church, it needs to be tested, needs to be weighed. He'll say, let the, the two or three prophets speak and let the others judge or weigh what is said. There's a time of testing. We're to test all things, not quench the Spirit, but test everything that purports to be from Him. Because there's an enemy out there who will seek to deceive and counterfeit, so we need to test everything. What are these spirits, discerning of spirits? I don't believe they're evil spirits. I believe he's referring to the spirits of those who prophesy or give an interpretation in tongues because all revelation comes through the human spirit. Paul says that the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. In other words, what he receives is under his control. He can choose to share it or not to or, or be selective as when to share it. Paul said, when I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prays, that inward part of us that the Holy Spirit indwells. And so discerning of spirits is discerning the spirit of the individual who will speak something prophetically or give an utterance or an interpretation of tongues. That is what needs to be discerned, to be wed, to be tested. Is this God? Is this the flesh? Is this God and the flesh? We need to be careful and judge and weigh everything. The next gift he talks about here is the gift of tongues. I mentioned this last week, and we'll probably mention it again next week. And that's simply the supernatural ability to pray to God, to worship Him in a language we've never learned. What a powerful gift. And though the misuse of it was the problem in Corinth, Paul prized it very highly indeed and encouraged others to seek it and thank God that he spoke in tongues more than they all did. He that speaks in an unknown tongue, he says, edifies in himself, encourages, builds himself up, builds up spiritual muscle. But times when we pray and we can't express our need and words fail us, God has graciously given us a language that we can pray to him in and to worship him and magnify him. There's only one gift of tongues, but it is two uses one in the private devotional setting, and the other when we come together when it's followed by the gift of interpretation. And we'll see next week, but the gift of interpretation is needed when someone gives an utterance in tongues in a worship setting so that the rest of the church can be edified by understanding what was spoken. Time is away, but just from verses 14 to 26, Paul uses the analogy of the human body to illustrate the importance in the body of Christ that we all need one another. We've all been given a gift to put to use to build up the church. And he'll liken, he'll, he'll use the, the hand and the foot to liken to a human body part. 
but because of their misuse of the gift of tongues, what he goes on to tell them is you're, you're like a human body with only one active body part. There's no diversity. You need to be diverse. You need to let the Spirit of God manifest in diversity. Again, verses 29 to 30, he picks up and stresses one last time the emphasis on diversity. Don't be uniform. Don't be all the same. The Spirit of God brings diversity. And let me just say this, because some people take this scripture and they misunderstand it. In verse 30, he asks the question, do all speak with tongues? It's a rhetorical question, and the implied answer is no. But bear in mind, the problem in the Corinthian church was that everybody, if not all of them, were speaking in tongues. But Paul, in seeking to correct that misuse and stressing and emphasizing the importance of diversity, effectively illustrating that in this passage, that one is given this gift, one is given that gift, and so on. If the Holy Spirit is allowed to move, there will be diversity. So in that setting, not everybody will speak in tongues. That doesn't mean, however, everybody can't. They just won't as the Spirit of God is allowed to move and bring diversity from within the body, to edify the body, and to encourage the body. 1 Corinthians 14, and we'll probably see it again next week, Paul says, pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts. These manifestations we've looked at tonight will occur in our churches only if we desire them. If we desire them, we'll ask God to have His way by His Spirit, and we'll make ourselves available to be used by Him. You may not be familiar with what I've shared tonight. Some of you I know are. Maybe some this is new to you. But let me assure you, this is normal New Testament Christianity. It's normal. But as I said at the beginning, because the church has drifted away from that, the church has become subnormal. That when it begins to recover it, it looks abnormal to many people. But if we desire, if we seek God and ask Him and make ourselves available, we'll get that healthy, normal New Testament Christianity back to the extent that people will come into our meetings and declare that God is truly among you. Can we pray?